Hello and welcome to this final uh, episode of the first series of the Global Growth Leaders podcast. My name is Simon Haig and I'm delighted to be joined once again by my co-host Henry Wang. Henry, it's good to see you for the final time in this series. Good to see you, Simon. I really enjoy doing this series of 12 podcasts with you. And I think it is amazing to, to see the interest and global response by people. I think they really felt that with us, the theme of East-West understanding and international collaboration. I'm very glad about all the follow-on project that we are going to do. Anyway, let's record this podcast. Overcoming COVID has incurred unprecedented human and economic costs globally. Unlike prior economic crises, which are normally caused by financial bubbles, economic or monetary policy mistakes, the current crisis is a global pandemic caused by health, and viruses, and then it has serious economic and supply chain, leading to supply chain failures. Experts have warned that this isn't just a temporary hiccup, but a warning of something more serious globally, like climate change. There are some countries pushing for fast recovery and return to business as usual with some quick fixes. However, there are also many strong drive from various global leaders with longer term vision to build back better with sustainable improvements. A good example is the recent call by the United Nations World Economic Forum and the G20B20 on building back better post COVID with sustainable improvements. Thanks, Henry. And so geopolitically, this crisis has, from a medical research perspective at least, underlined the huge value of global collaboration. We're witnessing the development and adaptation of life-saving technologies and massive research into treatments. As we've seen with the recent amazing announcements, it's, it's great that we're recording this episode last, Henry, because there's been amazing announcements uh, in, in vaccines, hopefully for, for, you know, for the whole of 2021 and onwards. Um, we're experiencing perhaps not seen before, at least since the AIDS crisis of the 1980s, sharing of scientific journals, genome sequencing data and clinical trials, bringing together thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of scientists, medics, medics companies and researchers globally. So to facilitate greater international collaboration and understanding, Henry and I have come together to conduct a series of global podcasts with distinguished international thought leaders from both the East and the West. And these thought leaders uh, have been discussing key topical issue, issues, including healthcare, youth, innovation, climate change, media, leadership, culture, and much, much more. And we hope that these open exchanges of views with international thought leaders from both the East and the West should help foster greater international understanding and cooperation. And we're delighted that all episodes will be featured on all leading podcast channels, YouTube, social media, uh, and we're hoping very shortly on Chinese media as well. Um, so next, Henry, let's move into this final episode. And it's a special episode because it's you and I talking about a subject that we talk about in the um, introduction, which is around the whole area of climate change, but specifically carbon finance. And um, I'll kick off with you, Henry. Um, can you tell us some major developments that are taking place um, globally by various governments to reduce their carbon emissions and their carbon footprints? Yes, that's a very important area. I'm honored to be invited to join the B20 International Task Force to advise the G20 global leaders. And uh, we all agreed, I've been working with global CEOs, leaders, and uh, international expert for the last 12 months on the key important area of energy, climate change and sustainability. And we all agree that climate change is really going to be the number one problem that is facing all the countries in the world post COVID. And it is very important that all the different countries in the world should work very hard to reduce their carbon emission and the carbon footprint. 
The reason for that is that they need to reduce this so as to reduce the global emission, so as to control global warming. If the current, I mean, the, the world, like the UN Secretary General ever said, the temperature around the world has already risen by 1.3 degrees C. And we, we do nothing, it will continue to rise by the end of this century by three or four degrees. And that could be hugely damaging to the world. And it could eliminate something like 30 to 40% of the world's GDP. It can create a huge number of extreme weather climate events like typhoon, hurricanes, and things like that. And already we are seeing some of this, plus huge snowfall and flooding, which could be incurring untold damages in different countries in the world. Therefore, many countries in the world which have signed the Paris Agreement have been implementing new policies in these areas. And these include energy transition policies, which dictates how the country, their country is moving away from fossil fuel to clean energy, including solar, wind, and uh, other clean type of energy. This has led to clean energy growth globally in different countries. Although the growth has not been as quickly as some people expect, but looking ahead, I think the investment in clean energy growth and renewable are likely to uh, average about $200 billion a year. I mean, up till now, over a trillion dollars already been invested into renewable energy by different countries in the world. So going ahead, 200 billions a year is a sizable investment. And these needs a lot of policy supports and uh, by the governments, by different countries in the world and by banks in the world. And the other very important area is that, you know, we've identified with global experts that electricity and power generation is a major area for carbon uh, emissions and, and greenhouse gases. So a lot of countries are moving away from coal and stopping fossil fuel in their power generation, the power ch supply chain, so as to go into generation of green power. Another major area for carbon emission is, is really from transportation and mobility. And, and you can see in here the huge growth in electricity, electric vehicles and uh, clean vehicles and the growth of green mobility now, which are very, very important. And there's a lot of policy supports by different countries in the world. And then another very important area which we've been working on and have made recommendations to the G20 leaders is really in green buildings and infrastructures. I think in the cities of the world, the huge mega cities in the world, now building is, is a huge area for energy consumption and also for emission and responsible for a lot of generation of carbon emission from the power sector. So it's very important that we improve building standards and adopt green buildings. So these are some of the key developments that are going on. Absolutely. Okay, Simon, maybe you can tell us some of the major developments that are taking in places in establishing suitable international carbon emission trading systems by different governments globally. Well, Henry, this is a subject that uh, I know a fair amount about, although I'm not, I'm not, unlike you, a global expert in the subject. But I, at one point in my career, I was general manager of a, a syngas uh, coal conversion company in Australia. And so I became very familiar with the Australian carbon trading uh, scheme at the time. And but just to set the scene, really, um, you know, I've done a fair amount of research and I've looked at the World Bank Group and I didn't realize that as recently as last year, there is something like 37 billion tons of CO2 in the atmosphere, which broadly equates to nearly five tons per person, and um, which, which sounds, you know, a significant amount. And, and as you said, you know, action is really rapidly required. And 
the good news is, you know, since the Paris Agreement was adopted in 2015, I think something like 189 countries have submitted national plans. And I'm personally very happy that uh, Biden has said that one of the first things he does, I think in his first day in office, he's going to come back and re-sign back into the Paris Accord. So, so that just sets the scene. In terms of carbon emission trading schemes, there are various different schemes, cap and trade and baseline and credit. And I'm very aware of the mechanisms, which I won't go into, but um, you know, the, the EU ETS scheme, which was launched, I believe, in 2005, uh, unless you correct me, I think it was 2005, um, yeah. that kind of set the benchmark. And I think my research shows that that um, that you know the, the share of global greenhouse emissions globally since the launch of that EU ETS in 2005, captured by national ETS schemes, have trebled from five percent to fourteen percent of being captured by national national and international ETS schemes. So that's a trebling uh, in fifteen years. But as you as as we've just said, fourteen percent of thirty seven billion is still a drop in the ocean. There's a huge way to go. Um, so, you know, there are, all, apart from the EU ETS scheme, you know, there have been a number of national and sub-national schemes and also bilater bilateral corporations. You'll know more about, I think there's been an EU-China cooperation. There's been multinational corporations. The EU, where I'm based, uh, has been a founding partner in the International Carbon Action Plan. Um, so plenty, plenty of action. And, um I'm just back at you, Henry. In terms of China, I know China is very, very ambitious around um, carbon emission trading. I don't know whether this is something you'll talk about later, but what is China? I mean, China's plan must be huge. I hear about a 2060 target. Does that relate to carbon emissions trading scheme or is that just much broader than that? No, it's a very good question, uh, Simon. And uh, carbon emission control is a very key part of uh, the, the, the plan that President Xi Jinping has talked about first to the United Nations and recently in the uh, Climate Ambition International Forum by global leaders. When, they, when President Xi Jinping announced that China has now a new target of achieving carbon neutrality by 2060, you know, and very a key part of that is that they have uh, been uh, testing uh, carbon emission trading schemes in China for a long time. I was lucky to be, uh, when I was the director for one of the international energy companies in China, I was invited to join the bilateral UK-China carbon working group. And where we start talking about carbon emission trading, which is about 20 years ago, you know. And then they have undertaken the carbon, pilot carbon emission trading systems in six big cities in, in, in China, including like Shenzhen, Shanghai, these are really mega cities. And these have been very successful and they have also assimilated international know-how, talked to great international experts around the world. And now they are moving on uh, to, to make this a national scheme. Although they are introducing it in a, in a slow stepwise manner by targeting certain polluting industry first, like the power industry. And this is something which I've written in my last book on climate change. And I will be writing more about this in the sort of new book that I'm going to be publishing next year on the climate change and the carbon neutrality, which is now really top priority for policy leaders around the world. Uh, absolutely. And so in terms you've mentioned governments, so what would you say would be some key policy priorities that the world needs to execute globally to bring carbon levels back to more manageable levels and also and or to promote carbon financing. Some, some key policy priorities that you're seeing needed. Yeah, this is a important policy area that uh, we've been advising on and uh, various governments are very, very interested in, in working on. And one of the top ones is really they need to uh, develop 
uh, one of the top policy priorities that, that governments around the world are working on is really on energy transition policies. You know, they are laying down policies together with carbon emission and carbon neutrality targets so that they can move away from the current uh, the energy mix, which burns fossil fuel with renewables and others into a energy mix, which will be primarily with clean energy. Mm. And one very important area uh, that the international energy authorities been been campaigning on really, and I've been working together with them, is to eliminate fossil subsidies that many governments around the world is still providing to 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 in their country to different citizens. And and this is amazing thing that uh, to hear that, that that is still going on. And this is leading to why for many, some of these countries, it's very difficult to move away from fossil fuel. But of course, this is tied up with uh, living standards, political promises, and things like that. And this is a tough political nut for a lot of the polit political leaders and government leaders to tackle. Uh, the other area which you talked about is, of course, uh, in carbon emission and emission trading and caps. You know that it's very important for gov governments to establish clear policy for carbon pricing and for carbon so as they can establish a carbon emission system so that industries and companies which emit a lot of carbon can will have to pay for the emission and the damages that they're doing to to the atmosphere yeah and and a lot of this you know science can help for example a very famous case example is the methane monitoring system, which actually is pioneered by the USA. You know, methane is a really bad greenhouse gas, much worse than carbon dioxide. And the oil and gas companies have been uh, working together. Uh, they, they have uh, and have been emitting a lot of methane. And but at the same time, they've been working together using advanced technologies uh using advanced sensors and now satellites to monitor methane emissions around the us and around the world and they really have uh, find out new sources of methane which companies are eliminating a source and this contributed greatly to the reduction in greenhouse gas emission so these are some of the key priorities, policy priorities that the that these different governments are working on. And these are mainly really targeting towards energy transition and achieving carbon neutrality, so as to eliminate carbon emissions. Absolutely. Okay, Simon. Having talked about this, so would you like to say something about what are the key new policy priorities that various government have been doing to attract global, local, and foreign investments, including those from Chinese investors, to invest in their new carbon reduction and green carbon finance projects. Thanks, Henry. Well, just building on what you were saying, um, and, and you know, taking some information from the International Finance Corporation at the World Bank Group, I think. From, from my research, there are three broad areas where policy seems to be being targeted generally supranationally. And number one is, um, as you said, you know, promoting low carbon climate aligned investment opportunities. That's whether it's through bonds, government bonds or equities, green bonds, green equity, etc. Uh, so that would be a key area. I, I guess another area would be around, um, as you said, you know, tackling pricing, pricing differences, um, easing of tariffs, um, and also international collaborations. I guess another area would be um, a critically important area for business as well, and in terms of investment opportunities, is integrating investment-related risks and opportunities into investment processes, the banking systems. Um, and, and I've seen you present... Um, at Imperial College London to a group of young, amazing students around different, you know, developing new finance mechanisms to assist 
grease the wheel of, of, of climate, you know, climate um, reduction through, you know, various mechanisms around finance. And then the third area would be, a big area would be phasing out investments in thermal coal globally. And as you said, you know, this brings some political challenges for developing countries. So, um, and I think, you know, in terms of specific investment industries, certainly over here in Europe, um, there, I've done quite a bit of research um, and solar, wind, energy, uh, and bioenergy seem to be real policy areas from an EU perspective in terms of investment. So there's a huge amount going on. Um, to be honest with you, somebody who's not an expert, you're the expert, getting my head around this whole space, because there are so many different strands. When you, when, when you talk about climate change and mechanisms to combat it, I don't know whether you want to expand on this, but for the beginner, how does the beginner get the head around where to look? Is there, a, is there a good source for somebody who's very interested in this? And it's important to say this because people will be listening. To, from, from beginning, how does somebody understand what this means and build their knowledge? What's, what, what do you think is the best way? Yeah, well, this is a, a huge area and it is a very fast growing area. Uh, and uh, well, when I, I, I when I first was invited to to work together, you know, uh, with with some of these uh, climate leading climate bodies, I had the same question. And uh, one good example, I think, a lot of work has been done in in the city of London on green finance. They have actually. Uh, been setting, leading the pace around the world in this. I mean, uh, they have uh, uh, commissioned a green finance team in the city, which is uh, including some of the leaders from the biggest banks and financial houses working together, identify new green finance air initiatives and areas for the city of London, you know, with Brexit coming, I think they see green finance as a very important area. And now, you know, as part of that initiative, they have set up a green finance institute in the city of London. And anybody who is interested in green finance and things like that could contact uh, this uh, institute, which could uh, help them with, with uh, linkages to, to key people or how processes will work, because a lot of this is a developing area. Mm. Absolutely, it's fast moving. And, you know, one other policy area that I didn't mention as well moves more into the political, and that's around energy security and also potential for job creation as well. And that's very poignant given the period we're going through, you know, with job losses around COVID, et cetera. I think this provides potentially significant opportunity for governments um, to provide, you know, to, to map out a recovery program using green energy. Would you agree with that? Oh, no, it's absolutely. I agree with that. That is a, a very key area. Let me just share with you one very interesting research done by the International Renewable Energy Association, IRENA. Yeah, they have estimated that... Uh, with the renewable growth around the world in the last five years, they have already created 10 million new jobs in the renewable sector, you know, in different countries around the world covering Europe, Asia, America. Yeah, so also, I think this message is now getting through to the politicians. And it is very interesting to hear the UK Prime Minister speaking the other day when he actually said, you know, post-COVID, uh, you know, green growth, green energy growth will create a lot of new jobs in, the, in finance, in energy, in other areas. And therefore, you know, therefore he is fully supporting, you know, climate change that uh, this is something which is good for the world as well as good for the economy. Absolutely. No, that's, that's great. So let's move on to China. I've mentioned a little bit about the EU, and I'll talk about the EU again in a second. 
you know, China's clearly very, very ambitious in its work to reduce its carbon footprint and to promote carbon financing. What are some of the major initiatives China is rolling out in this space? Yeah, this is uh, uh, very important areas that I that that this uh, developing, and I've written about this in my books, and also been invited to speak about this in the House of Lords. I think the most important development is really President Xi Jinping uh, giving his really keynote speech to the UN, spelling out that the, the new China. Uh, target of achieving carbon neutrality by 2060. And he re reinforced that in the climate uh, ambition forum that he hosted with the G20 leaders uh, recently. Yeah, and in this area, you know, China has been very ambitious in promoting energy transition uh, and the growth of uh, renewables, and it has become one of the leader in renewable energy in the world with growth in solar, wind, hydro power, and, and, and other areas. At the same time, it is really promoting the growth of green transportation. It has uh, huge, I mean, transport is a huge area for carbon emission in China. And they've been active in the converting uh, they have a national electric car program, which has catapulted China from a country with very few electric cars to one of the leading countries in the world with electric cars. And they are also moving into gas vehicles. They are now very ambitious. They have now developed very ambitious hydrogen plants, which uh, I was recently invited by Lord Power not how well to, to speak about in the, uh, to the Windsor Energy Group that he chaired. And uh, they are very, and they have identified actually hydrogen as a very important clean fuel. And they're putting a lot of investment and innovation in green hydrogen. And hydrogen is still very expensive at this moment in time. But the experts are forecasting that the if all these innovations develop as planned, then the hydrogen production cost could be reduced by 70 to 80%. Now, a lot of people may say that is, oh, dreaming, daydreaming that this is possible. But let me share with you a good example. I mean, 10 years ago, when people talk about renewable, solar, wind, you know, that was very, very expensive. And today, after 10 years of innovation and developments around the world, the International Renewable Energy of Association has reported that the cost of renewables have actually reduced by 70 to 80% in 10 years. And uh, to make uh, to such an extent that some of the renewable energy is already more cost competitive than fossil fuel, like wind. You know, onshore and offshore wind is now cheaper to generate electricity than using gas or fossil fuel. And in another five years, they forecast that the, all the renewable energy will be cost competitive against fossil fuel. So that's great news for energy transition and moving into clean energy. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Now, Simon, I mean, having talked about China, Europe and Ireland are also very ambitious in their work to reduce its carbon footprint and to promote carbon finances. Maybe you can share with us some of the major initiatives they are rolling out in this area. And also, how can investors from outside Europe and Ireland, like from China and from Asia, participate and invest in this? Absolutely. Well, it's a huge area. And, and again, I, I've spent, I've actually spent quite a lot of time researching this. I didn't realize how many opportunities, but, you know, the broad areas are, you've mentioned the elimination of fossil fuels. So the whole area of alternative energy is a massive area. And 
I'll give you one example, Ireland, and I didn't realize this until I researched it, but, but currently there are 82 renewable energy projects um, that have been given the green light by the, the Irish government um, under the, what's called the Renewable Energy, uh, Renewable Electricity Support Scheme. And these are available for opportunity. 63 of these, believe it or not, are solar farms. Now you wouldn't think that of Ireland because Ireland's a little rock in the middle of the Atlantic very windy and a lot of people think a lot of rain, but you still have solar generation coming through the cloud, you know. So so 63 of those schemes are solar and 19 are onshore wind farms. There's something like $1.5 billion of Irish, Irish government allocation, um, thousands of jobs, and the, the, the Irish government are planning a lot of public-private initiatives. So um, the Irish government actually aims to see 70% of its uh, electricity provided by renewable sources um, in the next 20 odd years, which is extremely ambitious. But, but when you think the west coast of Ireland is the windiest place on the planet, um, it, it's a very untapped resource. So, so that's the Irish government. In terms of the EU generally, I've mentioned renewable energies, but also emission caps, methane monitoring, carbon tax, and obviously the EU ETS that came out in 2005, I understand that, again, my research suggests that 45% of the EU's emissions from power, aviation, and industry are now covered underneath the, e the ETS in the EU. So nearly half. Um, I think that, that the EU has just signed an agreement with the Swiss ETS in January of this year, and about 60 billion um, euro of revenue has been raised through the ETS. I think the fourth trading scheme for the ETS, the fourth phase is due out next year. Um, so there's huge opportunities. In terms of investment as well, there's 1 billion grants available right now. I had a look at the EU website, commission website, um, for all sorts of you know, investment into energy, industrial processes, agriculture, waste elimination, et cetera. An interesting statistic, again, that I researched over the weekend, just this year in the EU, um, there's been an 8.4% increase in uh, electricity generation from new renewable energy, while at the same time, a 9.7% decrease in overall electricity use, which means comparatively renewable energy is going up as a proportion. So that's good. Having said that, you know, there's always negative news. And, um, you know, I researched over the weekend that some of the some of the laggards in Europe per capita, I think, in fact, you shared a, a nice graph that showed a kind of a pie of different nations emissions. And I'm afraid to say Ireland is probably in the bottom six or seven in Europe. I think Luxembourg, Finland, Poland, Germany, Belgium, Ireland per capita. So there's still a long way to go. But that's good for investors. So there's still a huge opportunity. So that's that's the EU and Ireland. So Henry, um, maybe if you can give us some examples of some carbon financing programs that are being implemented globally and how they're helping to innovate to a better future. Yeah, I think this is really very important area that is uh, going on, and. Uh, one of the most amazing thing in, in that we have noticed and studied when we work with the uh, green finance team in, the, in, London, in the city of London is really in the growth of green bonds. Green bonds has, was really very, very little 10 years ago, and it has grown tremendously, you know, in the last 10 years you know, to, to a huge amount, over multi-million amount of uh, bonds are now being issued in different countries in the world. I mean, good example, you know, London has become one of the biggest green bond trading areas. Now, Hong Kong government, I'm currently in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government has also very proud that they have been issuing green bonds and the same can be said in China and other Asia countries. And this is, these and the investors also are smart nowadays, but they also see that by investing in green bonds, they can be doing something which is uh, beneficial to, to the world, but is at the same time being a very safe investment. And I think investment banks and houses around the world has actually 
uh, undertaken huge studies to see that uh, where companies have been applying the sustainability guideline, what they call the ESG guidelines, which includes environment, sustainability, and governance to their investments and to their business strategies, these companies have performed better and they are smarter companies than other companies. And these are smarter investments for investors to go in. So a lot of investment banks are now demanding some of the biggest investment banks, for example, one I've been working, advising on, one of the top investment bank in Europe have just issued new guidelines to all its investment managers that all the investments that they hold in, that they make around the world must abide by the ESG guidelines, i.e. that these companies must report on their environmental, social, and governance performance so that the bank can and their investor can review their performance to decide if they continue their investment or divest of it. So this is very serious. And at the same time, they have also issued guidelines to say that they are no longer going to be supporting any or lending money to coal projects or coal power station projects. Mm -hmm. And this is a great step towards the energy transition and green energy. Thank uh, you. Thank you. So Simon, can you also give us some examples of uh, smart uh, carbon finance projects that Chinese investors can invest both in China and overseas? Yeah, well, I, I think I'll focus more on overseas because you're more the expert in China. But I've mentioned the EU and uh, obviously, you know, there's a billion euro of grants right now for investment, not just in terms of uh, carbon finance, but in terms of green energy generally. Um, but some specifics, and I think we've it's kind of a little bit of repetition of what you said, but the main ones would be obviously the green and climate aligned bonds, very, very significant. And there's a significant growth in the UK um, and in the EU, but the UK is a real leader. Listed equity funds as well. Um, there are unlisted strategies and assets. Investors need to find all this. They need to get some good financial advice. There are also numerous low carbon indices. And of course, I've mentioned before the private um, invest, project investments as well. One thing that I, I just want to, I've, I researched over the weekend and a very interesting fact, again, from the International Finance Corp at the World Bank, according to them, climate investment opportunities total 23 US trillion in emergent, emerging markets by 2030. I don't know where they come up with the number 20, 23 trillion in emerging markets and how they define emerging markets. But, but uh, I think that's just symbolic of the opportunity for um, job creation, for investment, for um, and basically for a cleaner earth. So I think there's huge opportunities. Absolutely. I think that this is a, a, a fantastic uh, uh, emerging area, not only for investors, but also for, for young, innovative uh, uh, student graduates and things like that who are very keen on climate change and the green finance area. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Imperial College, we were, I was invited to, to, to lecture there to the, to the very bright students and you were able to join me in one of these lectures. And some of these bright ideas that the students are coming up with are just really amazing and would be very beneficial for, for the world. No, I agree. And, and you know, and I, I meet, as you do, amazing young entrepreneurs and, and a shout out for one over here who, uh, has created a company called Enzo Initiatives, E-N-S-O, which stands for Environment and Social. And he's asked both of us to be involved in, in advising when, when this gets launched next year. But the, the business is it's just a simple premise of connecting small businesses to um, providing charitable donations or some, some sort of um, philanthropy to good causes around environment and social issues. And he, already he's got you know some major um, organizations supporting this. So I'm just, I'm always amazed at this smart 
the smart thinking and the drive of some of these young entrepreneurs. It's wonderful. So, Henry, what, what would you let, let's let's get the negative out of the way first and we'll finish on the positive. What would you say are the top two to three biggest concerns in international if if international carbon emission trading systems are not sufficiently established by various governments and used by various companies? The biggest concerns. Yeah, I think uh, there are a lot of concerns in this area. And really in the work, in my work with the G20 leaders and also the B20 task force for the global uh, experts, it's very clear that the, uh, if nothing is done, then temperature rise will continue and could reach three to four degrees by the, 20, by the end of this century. And this could devastate global GDP by 30 to 40%, much worse than what we've seen today with a lot of uh, extreme weather events like hurricanes, snowstorms, and all the things which will make our life really, really miserable. So it's very important that uh, the, 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 the leaders and also governments and others are work on this. And, but there are still global leaders who doesn't who says that they don't believe in climate change and things like that. And that is uh, a, a big concern of us and G20 leaders on really educating some of the, the global leaders and the corporate leaders and CEOs so that they understand the facts and don't argue on emotions mm. because, you know, they, they a very typical emotive argument is that, you know, you know, if I do or do these things, you know, and uh, this will devastate my bottom line and my share price will go down and things like that. And they need to think, these CEOs think to, need to think smarter. You know, the, I think the, the global population, the public, particularly the youth, you know, uh, has really understand the impact of climate change better than than the older generation. And uh, I mean, a lot of the older generation understand climate change very well. People, you know, like you and me and others, you know, uh, but they are those who are thinking very much about a profit or driven by greed and driven by profit. And they are really worried about short-term damages to their bottom line. And, And my message to them is, you know, just look at the damages that are being done to the share price of international fossil fuel companies who refuse to adopt climate measures. You know, they have driven, I mean, international studies have shown that the share price of oil and gas companies, whilst other new economy companies have risen tremendously in the recovery recently, they have really dropped. And not recovered. Whereas some of the smarter CEOs and leaders of uh, oil and gas companies who has adopted uh, clean uh, energy targets and carbon neutrality targets have seen their share price gone up against other companies who refuse to adopt these carbon neutrality targets. So this is time for the CEOs to become smarter and to get on and understand the bigger picture. I agree. I agree. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, Simon, having talked about my two to three biggest concern, what are your two to three biggest concern if international carbon emissions trading systems are not sufficiently established by various governments and used by different companies? Well, I, I think I think that the first one is yeah, obviously, you know, uh, the, the effects of not tackling the stuff you've mentioned around extreme weather and 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 flooding, the Arctic oceans, you know, acidity, acidity, acidity temperature rise three to four degrees, and, and Australia, a place close to my heart, you know, I mean that the extreme fires there uh, this year, so there's huge ramifications, and I think. My three biggest, two or three biggest concerns, number one would be the corporate space, as you said. I mean, 
you know, for a couple of hundred years, certainly in the West, companies have been ruled by the annual annual statements. And, and I think companies really now start to be, need to start thinking more in terms of a bit like the Chinese model, more about five-year terms rather than just annual incremental statements. And, and, and I fear that until, and again, again, the separate point that you mentioned, a generational thing, I think until some of the older generational C-suites move on and replaced by some of the younger generations, I think I would have some concern that some of those older companies might not get it. I think the second space then is, without getting into politics, though, is potential flare-ups from a macroeconomic perspective uh, globally. That would be another concern. And I guess another one would be, um, you know, maybe COVID as well has, you know, is going to, you know, it's, it's sending economic ramifications around the world. And to what extent, a question I would have is to what extent will that allow governments to um, open up or reduce tariffs or barriers to growth in renewable energies? Or do you think governments are going to focus more on some governments more on just survival and short termism? So I think they would be my biggest concerns, Henry. But but I but I do and we'll come on to optimism in a second. I do remain optimistic. So just finally. Are you optimistic about the future of carbon finance or not? And can you give us some examples of why you think the way you do? Yeah, in, in the short term, I am optimistic about the growth of uh, carbon uh, finance and, and also emission reductions. I think we have seen some very encouraging initiatives, for example, the ESG uh, initiative and which has really grown and, and, and is now being made mandatory in many stock markets around the world, for example, in London, uh, environmental, social governance reporting is now mandatory for all listed companies and the same in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And this will improve the company's ESG performance, leading to lower emission reductions, lower emissions, and longer-term green investments, and things like that. However, I have some concern about how, looking in the long, medium term, how this momentum will continue. Because once we have uh, achieved the lower, easier get getting fruits, you know, it will be more difficult to achieve further carbon emission reductions. They will need more investments. Therefore, I think it is very important that this momentum be continued. No, no, and the people are committed to achieving the targets, but this will become more and more harder as we go along. I agree. I agree. And what about you, Simon? How, how do you feel and about the outlook of the future of the international carbon trading systems and carbon investments? And are you optimistic about their growth? And, and any, any example you can share with us? I think a little bit like you, I, I kind of have mixed views. Uh, on the one hand, I'm optimistic about the growth of, uh, you know, trade carbon trading systems. And uh, because of the momentum that's been displayed, for example, by, by the EUS, EU ETS system, you know, it's tripled in, in, in terms of its impact in 15 years. So it's an easy way of measuring progress. And that's that's a good thing. But like you, I just wonder, as we progress forward, whether other priorities might be seen to overtake. Having said that, I think that I think being an optimistic, my optimistic head would say that, you know, there are so many um, investments now and so many initiatives, as you've mentioned, in, you know, energy transitioning, clean energy growth, green power, green mobility, green buildings, that if, this is my hope, that if carbon emission trading systems don't take off as quickly as we need them to, then hopefully they'll be overtaken by some of these smart technologies and smart ways of thinking. So that's kind of the way I like to think of it. Um, and yeah, I'm just naturally an optimist, but so much work needs to be done. And I think, you know, just wrapping up, Henry, I think this this has been a wonderful chat um, and, and, and it really important that this is our final chat in this series. And we hope that the viewer and listener found it equally as fascinating 
and I did, because I obviously had to do a lot of research to catch up with your knowledge. Um, but it was a wonderful chat. And um, uh, hopefully you enjoyed it, Henry. And uh, hopefully uh, the readers did as well. What do you think? No, I think it's been a wonderful chat, uh, Simon. We had. It is great that we we end up. It's been a great series on this doing, working on this global growth leader uh, podcast with you to promote East and West understanding. And it is really wonderful that we end up talking about the most important uh, global issue on climate change and carbon uh, emission reductions. Absolutely. And I, I, I've really learned a lot. I've enjoyed meeting the 20 leaders that we have interviewed from the East and West from over 20 countries and uh, four different continents. I think that, that that's the, the, the sort of breadth we have covered. Yeah. And I, I really hope our global lead viewers and listeners have also enjoyed this. And uh, we are, I'm looking forward to working with you together on a lot of the very exciting follow-up projects. Absolutely. Plus also, a new series of global podcasts uh, in 2021 next year. Absolutely. Exciting new themes. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, this has been a groundbreaking podcast, and we really hope everybody gets a chance to tune in and watch and listen. And as Henry said, we have some exciting opportunities ahead next year. Not least, we're hoping to bring all of our speakers back for a special special edition as well. And um, I think with that, I'd like to wish everybody a safe 2021. This has been a very challenging year, 2020, and hopefully 2021 is a year of recovery and returning to safety. But we, Henry and I hope everybody keeps safe. So Henry, thanks so much, and I'll see you in the new year. Thank you, Ron, Simon, and stay safe and take good care. And you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.